Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you don't really know when you learned about the free birds? Not me, I don't remember. Because I don't remember Brian ever saying anything about it. About the free birds? Yeah. If Brian Bowling really was killed because of his membership in the Freebird gang, then the obvious people to talk to to find out more about what happened to him would be the other members of the Freebirds. That's easier said than done, though, because there's no agreement on who the members of the gang had been. Brian's sister and brother-in-law told us that before Brian died, they hadn't even known he'd been in a gang. Who, who all was in this, this clique gang? Well, gang or whatever they called it. We don't know. We really don't. Did you ever talk about, like, being in a gang or... Kenneth told us that Brian hadn't mentioned the Freebirds, and he didn't know about it until after Brian's death. But Amanda said she thought the Freebirds had been a group of neighborhood kids. Which kids? Uh, Brian, Tommy, uh, James, Archer, uh, Josh, and Lee. Yeah, I'm... That was the only ones that I knew of. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. 
Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Proof. In addition to Brian, Josh slash Kane, and Lee, Amanda named Tommy Hyde and James Archer as the other members of the Freebirds. The prosecution has a different theory, though. They didn't believe Tommy or James were Freebirds at all. Instead, documents from the police file show that investigators thought the Freebirds had consisted of five boys. Brian himself, plus the four boys who had stolen the safe from Kane's father. A few pages of notes list the gang members and their possible gang names. The members were Kane, gang nickname Devil Eye, Brian, nickname Joker, Lee Clark, nickname Spick, Pete Jordan, nickname The Italian, and Joseph Wilkins, nickname Slick. These last two gang members, Pete Jordan and Joseph Wilkins, were not called as witnesses at trial. In fact, there's no record that investigators ever tried to speak to either of them. So we went to speak to Pete Jordan and asked him about the Freebirds. He never heard of the gang, never heard of Freebirds. And he's one of the ones who is listed as one of the gang members, and he's like, there was no gang. And yeah. he didn't know what the Freebirds were until Dallas Battle told him he was a gang member. It turns out that Pete Jordan had been interviewed. There's no record of it, but Pete told us that during the investigation, Dallas Battle had picked him up, taken him in for questioning, and told him he wanted to know more about this gang he was a member of. Pete's response had been, gang? What gang? What's interesting to me is he says he never felt like he was being accused of being involved in the murder. Battle was trying to find out if he he was a gang member or whatever, but... Battle was not approaching him as a murderer. He never felt like he was considered a suspect. But in reality, if this whole theory of what happened to Brian is true, um, he would have at least had knowledge of the murder. He'd have been one of the four involved. Pete Jordan was one of the four boys who stole a safe from Kane's father. But the only evidence these four boys were in a gang together came from Debbie Kelly, who said she saw all four of their names in a gang notebook. But the idea that these four boys would be in a gang together doesn't make much sense. He also wasn't even that close. Like, this was not a tight-knit group. This was not like a band of friends that liked to hang out at the time. He was friends with Lee. Um, He met Joseph Wilkins like once, maybe. He knew Kane and kind of didn't like him, kind of wondered why Lee was always hanging out with him. And he met Brian a couple times. Right, these these weren't people who had basically like, pledge their lives to each other like you do in an actual gang. Yeah, this wasn't like a stand-by-me crew. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even a friend group that hung out all yeah, the time. Yeah, it wasn't like the gang informally. Although the only other alleged gang member that Pete Jordan had been friends with was Lee Clark, Sergeant Battle seems to have believed that he was one of the Freebirds. Strangely, though, there's no indication that Battle believed that Pete had been involved in Brian's murder. But if... If Battle had believed his own theory about the safe theft 
narking by Brian being the motive for the murder? Well, you have four boys who would have been involved and wanted to do the murder, and he's one of them. And yet, Battle apparently has no doubts that he's not part of it. So the gang theory was just for show, for Battle. It was just a way to make his case. The evidence that Brian, Lee, and Kane were in a gang together is based entirely on the testimony of Debbie Kelly, who said she'd seen their names written in the Freebirds gang rulebook. She also said that, according to this notebook, the Freebird gang was bound by a set of rules, including rule number one, always stick up for your brother, and rule number two, if a brother narks to the police, kill him. But Debbie Kelly's testimony doesn't prove that Brian was killed because he broke rule number two. To prove that, the prosecution had relied on the weed eagle note that was recovered from Brian's casket after he was exhumed. It's a drawing of an eagle carrying a bag of weed, flying below a banner that says free birds. And in the corner of the eagle's flag is the word narcs, circled and crossed out. The weed eagle is not signed. There's nothing on the note itself to prove who wrote it. But at trial, the prosecution told the jury that it came from a gang member named Joseph Wilkins. The person we have not talked to and really need to is the same person the police apparently never bothered to talk to either, Joseph Wilkins. He's the one who drew the Freebird free yeah. note that they pulled out of the casket. And he's the one who wrote narcs on it if it was indeed one of the boys who wrote it. Like, how do they use that note as evidence against Liam Kane in the first place? Like, without you saying who, where it came from? Yeah, without talking to the boy who drew it, and while admitting that neither Kane nor Lee drew it or put it in the casket. And yet, they use that as proof that this was like a, a narc revenge shooting? It would seem to suggest that that kid had complete awareness of the so-called hit. And even the judge at trial at one point expresses surprise when the prosecutor's like, yeah, no one ever talked to him. And the judge's like, wait, no one talked to the guy who drew this note? Well, that's strange. Carry on. At another point during the trial, the judge had also asked the prosecutor if the boy who had drawn the weed eagle note was going to testify. No, the prosecutor told him. That person will not be called as a witness. The judge asked, wouldn't he be pretty important if this is supposed to be the symbol of a group and he's the one who made it? Well, let me evaluate that, the prosecutor replied. And the prosecutor is right. It's the prosecutor's job to decide who should be called as a witness, not the judge's. But the judge had a point. Joseph Wilkins is pretty important to the case. And it's not just because of the weed eagle note. According to the testimony of Debbie Kelly, the gang rulebook that she'd found at the Story residence had actually belonged to Joseph Wilkins. So why did no one talk to him? Everyone in this case, the investigators, the prosecutor, the defense, basically just assumed that Joseph Wilkins really had drawn the Weed Eagle note. There's nothing to prove, though, that's really the case. No one ever actually asked him if he did. But assuming he did write the note, there's a second question he was never asked either. Did he draw the no narc symbol that's on the corner of the Weed Eagle's flag? I spent a number of months trying to get in touch with Joseph Wilkins, but without success. And Lee Clark hadn't been able to tell me how I might track him down. How well do you know Joseph? 
not too well. I think I met him on two or three occasions. He was more Kane's friend than he was mine. The most hanging out I did with him was when we actually stole that safe. Lee hadn't even wanted Joseph to be involved in the safe theft in the first place. Joseph, Joseph just got into it because he was there with Kane. And I even told Kane, are you sure you, you trust this dude, man? He's your trustworthy? He said, yeah, man, yeah, 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 I know him. I said, all right, well, let's get it, let's go. That night, Kane and Joseph were both charged with theft for stealing the safe. A few days later, Lee and Pete Jordan were also arrested. Lee says it was obvious to him that either Joseph or Kane must have told the police what had happened. But he wasn't sure which one of them it had been. Kane being my lifelong friend, I'm choosing to believe him when he's telling me, hey, look, I didn't do it, man. When Kane told me that, when he kept telling me over and over again he didn't do it, I was convinced that Joseph was the one that told him. At trial, Lee learned that both Kane and Joseph had talked to the police. Both of them had fully confessed to their roles in the safe theft and named the other participants. Which makes it even stranger that Joseph Wilkins would have written narcs in the note left in Brian's casket. Why would Joseph have been complaining about Brian supposedly talking to the police when he'd already gone ahead and confessed to everything himself? We asked Amanda if she knew of Brian and Joseph ever having problems with one another. Never, because, you know, to me, he was just like a little loner to himself, you know. I never really seen him hang out with anybody. The people I talked to who knew him described him as kind of like the artsy kid. Yeah, yeah. Do you know why Joseph Wilkins would have written a message about narcs? Not really. Because, you know, I never thought he, I mean, I knew that he was friends with Josh and everybody, but I didn't know that they hung out like that. Amanda wasn't aware of any problems between Brian and Joseph. And in fact, she wasn't even aware they'd been friends. I remember Joseph. Because him and Brian were the same age. And I mean, they knew each other, but that was it that I knew of. So to your knowledge, was Joseph Wilkins one of the free birds? Um, I had heard that afterwards. You know, the one that would probably give you more insight about the free birds would be Tommy. I'd already looked for Tommy, but without success. And I asked Amanda if she knew where we could find him. Prison, she said. Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because, not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like, like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. 
Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code PROOF. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from... I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things. And that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Tommy Hyde was not a witness at Lee's and Kane's trial. But he is one of the major reasons that many of Brian's friends and family believe that Lee and Kane murdered Brian. What has Tommy told you about all this? He's just now getting to where he's comfortable with talking about what happened with Brian, because that really, it really messed him up too. And whenever they did that to him in the graveyard too, that really messed him up. That's why I believe Tommy did do what he did out of self-defense. That's why he is where he is right now, is out of self-defense, because of what happened when he was a kid, what happened with this. Right. We were told he was Mm -hmm. convicted of killing a friend of his. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they wasn't, like, friend, friends. But, I mean, they were hanging out together at one point. So. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the police ever talked to Tommy. I don't think that they did either. Tommy, Brian, and Kane were all neighbors. They all lived in trailers that bordered the Pleasant Hope Cemetery. And Amanda told us that the three boys had been close friends. Like three peas in a pod, she said. Lee had not been part of this trio. For one thing, he lived over in Lindale, not Silver Creek. And for another, Tommy hadn't liked Lee. Lee didn't like Tommy either, from what I always understood. They had gotten into it up there, you know. I don't know, boys are so unpredictable. Those who knew them remember that long before Brian's death, Tommy Hyde and Lee Clark had a mutual dislike for one another. But when they were younger, they'd often found themselves hanging out together anyway, because they'd both been close with Kane. And Amanda and Kenneth told us that they thought Tommy Hyde, plus another boy who lived nearby named James Archer, had been the other members of the Freebirds. I finally got a chance to speak with both of them. So the Freebirds, I talked to James Archer. He did not know about the Freebirds. Um, okay, well, I didn't know that. Tommy. I figured. Tommy is the only person I've spoken to who 
has heard about the Freebirds. Yeah. He said he wasn't really part of it because he'd moved away, but he said he'd heard about it. I wasn't able to record my conversation with Tommy Hyde, but after the first time I spoke to him, I called Jacinda with an update. The way he told it, it was not really a thing. It's just a group. They talked about being in a group or something. It was not not really that serious either way. Right. Anyway, his his lineup for the for the Freebirds was basically the three of them who lived right there near the, the cemetery, mm-hmm. plus Lee, which doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. I also mentioned the uh, the notebook, the gang notebook. Yeah. And his reaction was, see, that's something that Floyd County would just make up if they have to go to a jury trial. Wow. So he did not believe that the gang book was real. And then I told him that one of the gang rules was like, a brother shall not do drugs. And he's like, yeah, that's not it. <laughs> if, we, if there had been a gang and we had a rule book, that would not have been a rule. <laughs> Tommy told me that it had been very shortly after Brian's death that he began to suspect Lee Clark might have been responsible. Tommy mentioned he, it seems like he thought it was Lee pretty early on. Now, he probably did. Well, I guess Tommy did. You know, that might have been Tommy's first thought. I may, it may have been Tommy that had told us that Josh didn't do it without Lee say-so. You know, or without Lee being right there to make sure it happened. I don't know. Amanda and Kenneth told us that it made sense to them that Tommy would suspect Lee of being behind Brian's death. Because Brian and Lee had already gotten into it. About? In the graveyard, I think. What, what I, happened in the graveyard? I don't know. They, he, um, they had jumped on Tommy or something. What do you mean jumped on Tommy? Like, see, I had heard that they had put guns to both of them's head before this. Wait, who put, who put Josh guns? Josh did. Guns to whose head? Brian's and Tommy's. Josh put a gun to Brian and Tommy's head? And that's what I heard. That's what we heard. But Lee was there, too. Why were they threatening um, Tommy? They were just, they just threatened him. And supposedly, he told me that he, they put the gun up to his head and pulled the trigger. But it was empty, you know, so. That's what Tommy told you? Yeah. The story about Lee and Kane firing empty guns at Brian and Tommy did not come up at trial. In fact, Tommy didn't tell anyone about this until many years after Brian's death. But to Brian's family, it's an important piece of evidence that points at Lee's and Kane's guilt. When I finally spoke to Tommy, he told me about an incident that occurred at the house of an older neighbor where the boys sometimes hung out. I updated Jacinda on what Tommy had said. Well, the guns were empty, I guess. So like, they go up and bring the house. Both Josh and Lee have a gun. They each pull a gun. I mean, details are pretty vague, but Josh and Lee both pull a gun and point it at the back of the head of Brian and Tommy. And then like they apparently pull the triggers, but the guns aren't loaded. Tommy told me that he believes that Brian was killed, not because of anything having to do with the safe theft, but in order to prevent Brian from telling anyone about the dry firing incident. But what Tommy couldn't explain to me is why Lee and Kane might have done this in the first place. From what Tommy had described, this all just happened out of the blue. I told Lee what I'd learned and asked him if he remembered the incident that Tommy was describing. He said he was over, that he and Brian were over at Brent Forsyth's house and that you and Josh showed up and pulled guns on Brian and and, uh, Tommy Hyde. Okay, well, let me go ahead and clarify this story right here for you. If he wants to tell it backwards and don't want to tell it right, 
I'll go ahead and tell you the real truth of the matter. All right. We was at a party at Brent Forsyth's house one night. Me, Jane, Tommy, Brian, we was all up there drunk. Well, get up there. Brent Forsyth's got a lot of guns at his house, and he leaves his guns laying around on tables up there just like it's just free to pick one up. Well, just luckily, he's got that. Now, if I ain't mistaken, I think it was a 9 millimeter. He had it sitting on the coffee table over there. Brian was so drunk, Brian couldn't walk. And Tommy, he decided that he, he's drunk too. Tommy gets stupid when he drinks. He gets up stumbling around, picks that gun up, and starts forcing the Brian, starts clicking it, and then forcing the cane, starts clicking, and then pointing at me and starts clicking. I mean, that, that ain't cool. You don't point no gun at nobody and click it. I don't care if it's unloaded or not. My daddy taught me every all the time when I was growing up as a little bitty boy. He taught me the most dangerous gun in the world is an unloaded gun. He said, I say unloaded gun because you assume it's unloaded. Well, when he turned it around there and clicked it to me, I, I done had enough of that shit right there. I went over and grabbed him, drug him out in the yard, and I did eat him in an ant bed out there and left him in that ant bed. All right, first off, what was that last thing? The what now? You DT'd him in an ant bed? A DDT. You know what a DDT is, don't you? N- no. It's a wrestling move. You lock a head in and slam him into the ground. I slammed him face first in that ant bed. That was not part of the story I got from Tommy Hyde. Yeah, I imagine he left all that out. He didn't tell it to you straight. Since there aren't any records about the dry firing incident, we're left with Tommy's word versus Lee's word about what really happened. But there are a few things that Tommy says that don't quite add up. First, Tommy told me that this all occurred not long before Brian's death, maybe a couple of weeks at most. But Lee said that it had been much further back in time than that, maybe even as much as a year before Brian's death. And that would make more sense because Brian had been on house arrest for a couple of months before the shooting. He wouldn't have been hanging out at night at other people's houses in that time period. And then there's what Tommy said when I talked to him for the second time after hearing from Lee. I told Tommy what Lee had said about the two of them fighting at Brent's house because Lee had been upset about Tommy dry firing the gun at him. And Tommy insisted that this isn't how things had gone down. That night that Brian and I were at Brent Forsyth's house, he told me, we were really drunk. Lee and Kane showed up and shoved me out the door. I stumbled down the porch steps, and I remember landing on my chin. I still remember the ants crawling on my head. I hadn't told Tommy what Lee had said about DDTing him into an ant bed, but that part of Tommy's story, at least, matches up perfectly with what Lee had told me. What makes me the most skeptical of Tommy's story, though, is that there's nothing else to corroborate it, even when it seems like there should be. But the fact, okay, one, Brent Forsyth did not tell us the story, and it was at his house. Two, Brian apparently never mentioned it to anyone else. And third, Tommy Hyde never mentioned it to anyone else. Tommy said he would ne- was never talked to by the police, because Tommy did say he eventually told Deborah Bowling about it. But that's it. I'm like, why would Deborah not have told the police about that? Right. I would know that interview Tommy Hyde about it. The first time I spoke to Tommy... He told me that investigators had never talked to him about this case. But I asked him why he hadn't told anyone else about the dry firing incident. I can't say. I don't know, he told me. But now, knowing what I do about life? Oh yeah, of course I'd say something. But back then? Well, he just hadn't. Later on, though, Tommy mentioned something else that surprised me. There was a a water tower that had some graffiti on it. Did you ever hear about that? Um, I think it was up in Lindale, and this, the graffiti says T-birds, not free birds. 
Um, but apparently they must have thought it was related because Tommy was saying that um, David Stewart took him up there to look at it. If Lee and Kane really did shove Brian and Tommy to the ground and really did fire empty guns at the back of their heads, then there's no apparent reason why Tommy would not have told investigators about it. Tommy hadn't liked Lee to begin with. He'd already been going around telling people that he thought Lee was involved in Brian's death. And according to Tommy, he actually did talk to the police about this case. So why did he wait until years after Lee's and Kane's conviction to tell anyone about the dry firing incident? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Before talking to Tommy Hyde, I hadn't heard from anyone in this case who said they had first-hand knowledge about the Freebirds. I had begun to wonder if the Freebirds had even been a thing at all. But later on, when Kane finally called me, I got the chance to ask him something I'd wanted to ask for a very long time. Kane, I've been wondering, what were the Freebirds? It's a concept. It's basically a concept. You know, a concept where you're as free as a bird, you know what I mean? Freebirds was not a band. It was not a clique, not a gang. According to Kane, Freebirds was a concept. He explained to me how this concept had come about. It was just basically, okay, well, I remember one day me and Lee were walking by my house uh, around the, uh, the cemetery up there, and a little bird landed on the cup of his pants. And he's like, whoa, look at that, man. We were, we were like, like 12, 13, 14 years old. He said, that's us, dude. We're free as birds, man. And that's where all that got started. That's all it was. The next time I spoke to Lee, I asked if he remembered a time he'd been hanging out with Kane and a bird had landed on him. Oh, yeah. When we was out in the yard out there, yeah, I had a bird land on me out there one time. I think we was about 11 years old, and I was standing there, and it come down and landed on my foot. Matter of fact, we, I thought we should listen to that song, Leonard Skinner, when that stuff happened. I told Lee what Kane remembered about him saying all those years ago, we're free as birds, man, and how Kane said this had been the origin of the concept of free birds. 
Lee had been surprised. Origin of Freebirds. I, I remember that being said, but I don't remember it being no origin of no Freebirds. Not like we started calling ourselves the gang or Freebirds or no stuff like that. But we was young kids when that happened. Hell, we, wasn't, I, we couldn't have been more than 11, no more 12. Lee had heard Kane talk about Freebirds. He thought it was primarily the name of one of Kane's garage bands or something like that. And over the years, he'd quiz Kane about whether or not there'd been a gang, but Kane always insisted there was no such thing. But Lee said he had never asked Kane how the phrase Freebird had come to be in the first place. He must have shared this concept with, with his buddy Joseph or something. He could have shared that idea with Tommy, too. Tommy lived next door to him, and Tommy being Tommy would have spun it into something it wasn't. There's no evidence that before Brian's death, Kane and his friends in Silver Creek had actually called themselves the Freebirds. But Lee says he wouldn't have known about it, even if that was something that was going on. It's not like before all that, I was going out there all the time. I mean, hell, me and Shelly were so caught up with each other, I mean, I was hardly ever seeing him anymore. I don't know the exact time frame of it, though. I mean, six, nine months, it may have been longer than that. In 1996, Lee didn't have much time for hanging out in Silver Creek. He'd already dropped out of school, started living with his girlfriend, Shelley, and had to get a job because he was now responsible for his own living expenses. He and Kane weren't around each other much, and Kane told Susan the same thing. Yeah, I mean, really, we didn't hang out much. I was really, he didn't got shined up with that girl or whatever, and he was working most of the time, and I was still in school, so not, not a lot, to be honest with you. That brings us back to the only tangible evidence of the free bird's existence, the weed eagle note. Someone did write a farewell note to Brian and drew an eagle carrying a banner that says free birds, and they stuck the piece of paper into Brian's casket. So was this note a reference to Brian's affiliation with the gang? The only person who can answer that question is the boy who supposedly wrote the note in the first place, Joseph Wilkins. While investigating this case, I'd tried reaching out to him several times, but I never got through. I wasn't even sure if I'd managed to contact him at all. It turns out I had, though. That's how he got my phone number when he finally decided to give me a call. I still had it saved. Been looking at it for almost three months. To- Debating whether or not I'm going to call you back or not. I'm glad you did. Um, I, I've wondered a lot about... Your name comes up a lot at trial in this case, and it kind of blew me away when I found out they never even talked to you. Yeah, they didn't give a crap what I, what I had to say. I was a 15-year-old kid. No one listens to a 15-year-old kid. I um, sat here and... Uh, debated whether or not I should call you back and um, I guess I, uh, sometimes I feel guilt that I could have done something, you know. Joseph told me that aside from Kane, he hadn't really been friends with any of the other alleged Freebird members and some of them he hadn't even known at all. But Kane and him had been close and he'd never thought that Kane could have been capable of murder. I mean, our girlfriends dumped us around the same time. I mean, we, uh, you know, we, we held each other and cried in each other's arms. But, you know, that doesn't seem like somebody that would ever do what he's been accused of. Did you ever hear anyone talk about a gang or gang membership? There was never any gang 
you know, they, I think they ended up making this whole narrative that um, there was a gang when there wasn't. I asked Joseph about the incident that started everything, the theft of the safe from Kane's dad. He told me that that day he'd been hanging out with Kane when Pete and Lee had come over. They showed up and Lee's like, hey, let's steal your dad's safe. Let's go get some pot. Joseph was ultimately convinced to go along with the plan, but he'd been reluctant. He thought that when the safe turned up missing, it was going to be pretty obvious who had taken it. I haven't told Josh that. I was like, there's no way we're getting away with this. No one seemed to care. I guess y'all took it somewhere and beat it open. Yeah, and uh, it broke open, and they found $3,200 in the safe. Lee pretty much said, let's go get some pot. The boys did buy some pot with the stolen money. Very shortly after that, though, Kane, Lee, and Joseph were all picked up by the police and driven down to the station to be interrogated. Yeah, they all put us individually in rooms and played good cop, back cop with us, and I played stupid as long as I possibly could, but, um, you know, I didn't really have a, a solid story or anything like that, and, you know, I told him I went to a Piggly Wiggly and put out a uh, employment application and he acted like he called the manager there and wanted to see the cameras and I was like oh crap <laughs> so that was your alibi uh, was the piggly wiggly yeah yeah that's what I said at first because I didn't <laughs> want to get in trouble but um but I told him and then you know everything that happened and you know Josh did too because he told me that he did after Joseph gave his statement to the police, admitting to the safe theft and telling the police who all had been involved, both Joseph and Kane had been charged with the theft. But only Kane got booked into jail. All I remember is they were taking him to jail, and because I was 15, they let me go home with my mom. And, you know, I, st- I told him to stay gold, and that was the last thing I said to him. Stay uh, gold? That yeah, that was a line from The Outsiders. The Outsiders is a famous coming-of-age novel by S.E. Hinton. In telling me about what had happened back in 1996, Joseph had described a couple of times when his 15-year-old self had quoted the book, which kind of fit the image I already had in my head of what Joseph had been like back in high school, just based on what I'd heard from people who had known him then. Well, a lot of people in my high school thought that I was a, uh, because I was a little different and I didn't really, um, fit into the herd of everybody else and the way society was. I was just a little bit more, I guess, liberal or maybe just a little bit different. Joseph's classmates had described him to me as a lonely kid who had won awards for his art and did okay in school. But nothing I heard about Joseph seemed to fit with what the state claimed at trial, that after Brian's death, he'd written a note to subtly brag about how he'd been murdered for narking and then placed it in the casket as a sort of signature to celebrate the gang's achievement in killing him. Were you at Brian's funeral? Yes. Did you put something in his casket? I did. Joseph confirmed that he had drawn the Weed Eagle note with its Freebirds banner and the note below saying that Brian would be missed and that they'd see him at the crossroads. A reference to the rap song by Bone Thugs and Harmony, which had been one of Brian's favorite. I asked him why this had been the drawing and the message that he'd chosen to place in Brian's casket. I wanted something nice to put in there to kind of represent all of those guys that uh, 
we were all friends with and um, you know people that couldn't be there like Josh but I didn't want to go you know go out and say you know I want to put this in there for Josh or anything like that because um, everybody was thinking that you know he had something to do with it or whatever mm-hmm. so I wanted something nice and still kind of respectful but kind of represent what we did and you know as a group guys Joseph said he hadn't wanted to put anything offensive in the casket, but he'd also wanted the message to be a genuine expression of the friendship that he and Kane had had with Brian, which had often involved smoking weed and listening to music. This note, though, had been the state's proof that Brian was killed for talking to the police because of what was written in the corner of the Eagle's flag. I texted Joseph a picture of the image and asked him about it. Have you seen what's on the flag? Yes. There's a little, it says narcs and it's crossed out. Right. Did you do that? I don't remember ever doing that because that word wasn't a part of my vocabulary. I never heard anybody uh, in in our group of circle of friends ever use that word. We never really talked about that kind of stuff. We never talked about, you know, people ratting on each other or, or anything like that. So we never were used that word. So that's the reason why I think I didn't write that. Do you have any thoughts uh, on what might have happened? Or how that no. got there? No, I wouldn't know. Because I, I drew the picture and I stuck it in and that was the last I saw it. Besides, Joseph told me, even if narc had been a word he'd actually used, he still would have had no reason to apply it to Brian. Like I said, everybody knew that that safe was stolen and everybody knew that we had something to do with it. And So I don't know why... Brian knowing anything on us or me knowing anything on anybody else or anything like that was uh, a thing. Joseph said that if investigators had ever asked him about the note, he'd have told them what he told me. But they never did. Did anyone ever try to question you in this case? No. At trial, they say that you wrote this note and that you wrote the narcs thing. I wasn't allowed. I was told that um, I'm on a need-to-know basis and They'll let me know if they do. And they never asked me anything about anything. And who who is they? Like the investigators? Yep. Did they, um, since it's they, they were in touch with you, but they never tried to question you? Nope. They knew where I lived. They knew my phone number. They knew my parents. There's no record of Sergeant Battle trying to talk to Joseph after Brian's death. But to be fair, during much of the investigation, Joseph also hadn't been in Floyd County. Shortly after Brian's death, Joseph's parents had pulled him out of school and sent him to live with relatives several hours away. But he'd returned to Rome the next summer. He had been living in Floyd County when Lee and Kane went on trial. And Joseph had wondered if there was something he should have been doing to set the record straight. The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us... Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals... That are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G. As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping 
stuff. It gets very gory in the basement. And it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the Capitol insurrection. But it didn't stop there. Every week on Conspirituality Podcast, we track the overlaps between New Age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. I tried to talk to a few sheriff's deputies. I, I talked to uh, the lawyer that I had, um, the whole safe incident. I talked to my parents. I've tried to talk to everybody I possibly could at the time, and they all told me to leave it alone. So your attorney knew about this as well, and he, and he, he advised you that, like, this is not something you want to get involved in, or? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure he told me that. I was just like, you know, I don't think this is right. What, you know, is there something I can do? And he said, I would just, just stay out of it and let, um, you know, things just come out in the, the way that they're supposed to. Or I forgot what he said, but he just basically told me to leave it alone. What did you think when you heard they were convicted? It broke my heart. Because I knew they didn't have anything to do with it. I never, I never, um, thought that they were guilty at all. Do you think Brian was playing Russian roulette? Yes. Does that sound because he, because he would do crazy things like that. One interpretation of what happened here is that investigators just screwed up. They failed to interview a crucial witness, and because of that, they didn't realize that they'd gotten off track with their theory about the Weed Eagle note being proof of a gang murder conspiracy. But I think that interpretation is the wrong one. I think the story of Joseph Wilkins' role in this case is much more complicated, whether he knows it or not. Because after speaking to Joseph, I'd realized that Sergeant Battle's failure to interview him in the Brian Bowling case had been even more bizarre than I'd realized. When I asked Joseph about Lee Clark, he said that they'd hung out on maybe two occasions. The second time had been when they all stole that safe and got arrested. But the first time had been a random day sometime before that, when he and Lee and Kane had driven around and smoked pot together. The night that um, we snuck out of the house and ended up smoking a joint and riding around, we ended up getting pulled over that night. Um, and, um, and just smoke, so I figured we were all going to go to jail. So, um, but luckily we were able to go home. But the very next day, Sergeant Battle, um, he ended up calling um, the house, trying to get in touch with my, my mother, and she wasn't there at the time. So, but he told me who he was, and I knew exactly what he was doing. What well, What was he doing? Um, I'm guessing he was because he had such a um, a thing against Lee that anyone hanging out with Lee, uh, I guess he was calling and, and letting all the parents know that, you know, we're 
hanging around someone that, you know, getting in trouble a lot. So before Brian's death, Sergeant Battle had known exactly how to find Joseph. And sure, maybe Battle hadn't been able to interview Joseph after Brian's death because his parents had sent him out of town. But Joseph had returned to Rome the following summer. In fact, he and Kane had ended up getting summer jobs together at the same fast food joint. There was a part where I was driving us to Bojangles to go to work, but I was told I should probably stay away until all this blows over. Who, who, told, who told you that? My, my parents. Mm-hmm. They were just like, you should probably just stay away from them. And I actually heard Sergeant Battles tell me once that they followed us to Bojangles one morning, one morning, and that's how they know that we were still hanging out with each other. They followed you to Bojangles? That's what, that's what he said. I had asked Kane about how often he'd seen Joseph after Brian's death, and he had remembered the same thing that Joseph had. He told me that um, while you were, like that summer, while you were still out on bond, that y'all hung out a couple yeah. times. Well, we were, we were working together and, uh, at the Bojangles. That's what he said. And uh, I think, uh, if I were to recall, I think in Dallas Bauer, somebody found out about it and told us we couldn't do that no more. So, I, don't, I, I really don't remember, remember exactly how that went, but it, it was something that effect right there. I thought it was interesting, because clearly Dallas Battle could have found Wilkins if he wanted to. We have no records of the police speaking to Joseph Wilkins, but that doesn't mean they never did. And from what Joseph's mother remembers, it seems like Joseph may have been in contact with the police very shortly after Brian's death. I'd ended up speaking to his mom once when I'd been trying to reach him. And afterwards, I told Jacinda about how she'd told me a confusing story about how the week after the shooting, the police had been called to Pepperell High School because of something having to do with Joseph and his connection to the case. And she's like, but there should be police reports because there was an incident in the school. There, you know what? There was a newspaper article about that. Oh, really? About what? There's a newspaper article about a threat at the school. I'm going to have to look it. I'll look for it again. It's it's in our files. But the police came. There was some. I think the police came and they said it was unfounded or it didn't amount to anything. We have no police reports from this incident. They must be among the records that have been lost. But the newspaper shows that the police came to Joseph's high school the Wednesday after Brian's death due to unspecified tensions that had arisen in the wake of the shooting. The news articles also note that there were, quote, wild and outlandish rumors going around town about Brian's death. So we don't know exactly why the police went to Pepperell High School that day, other than that had something to do with Joseph, according to his mother. Joseph told me that he does not recall the police coming to the high school, but he does remember something happening that caused concern for his well-being in the wake of Brian's death. Somebody asked me if I needed protection or something, and I was like, I don't know. Was that at school someone asked you? Maybe the guidance counselor, maybe. I'm not really sure. It happened pretty quick, this whole time frame. And, um, you know, next thing I know, I'm getting... I'm getting shipped off to another school to, you know, for my for my safety. Um, and you know, next thing I know, I'm there and still kind of confused on what was going on at the time.
So where did investigators come up with the idea that Lee, Kane, Brian, and Joseph had all been in a gang together? And lived by gang rules that included the oddly idealistic command to always stick up for your brother? Well, I've wondered, but there's one possibility I don't rule out. Because although the records are missing, it does seem like investigators knew about Joseph Wilkins very early on in this case. And based on their presence at the high school, if they didn't speak to him themselves, they had at least spoken to someone who had. And the investigator's story about the Freebird gang, well, it doesn't sound like something that would happen in real life, which the prosecutor himself fully admitted in closing arguments. After describing how Lee and Kane had killed Brian because of their membership in the Freebird gang, he told the jury, now, that may sound stranger than fiction, but sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. But sometimes fiction is just fiction. And this story about the Freebird gang and their book of rules doesn't sound like something that would happen in reality. But it does kind of sound like something that might have been said by a 15-year-old boy who likes to quote S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders, a novel about a bunch of teenage boys who join a gang whose first rule is, when you're a gang, you stick up for the members and make like brothers. At trial, there was another piece of evidence that the prosecution relied on to prove that a gang had existed. 25 years later on, Brian's brother-in-law, Kenneth, does not remember Brian telling him about the Freebirds. As you can imagine, 25 years later, it's hard to remember all the details. But at trial, Kenneth testified that Brian had once casually mentioned to him, hey, I'm in a gang called the Freebirds. The other members of the gang are Lee, Kane, Joseph Wilkins, and Tommy Hyde. This was the prosecution's strongest evidence that Brian had been in a gang. And it was one of the things that Lee Clark raised in his appeal, arguing that the trial court had made an error in allowing it into evidence. Once again, the Supreme Court of Georgia agreed with Lee. At trial, the victim's brother-in-law testified that Brian had told him that Brian and appellants were, quote, in a gang called Freebirds, end quote. It is undisputed that the witness's testimony as to what Brian purportedly had said was hearsay, the admission of which is limited to specified cases of necessity. In the case at Barr, the trial court made no inquiry or finding concerning the particularized guarantees of trustworthiness necessary for the admission of the hearsay. However, the erroneous admission of the hearsay amounted to harmless error, since establishing Brian's membership in the gang with appellants was admitted through the testimony of the party hostess. In its decision denying Lee's appeal, the Supreme Court of Georgia concluded that, just like with the evidence about the gang rulebook, Kenneth's testimony about the Freebirds had been mistakenly admitted. But once again, just like with the gang rulebook, the court concluded that this error had been harmless. Although the jury should never have heard any of the prosecution's other evidence about the Freebird gang, the court held that these mistakes didn't affect the jury's verdict. Because Angela Bruce, the party hostess, testified that Lee and Kane had confessed to killing Brian because he was trying to leave the Freebird gang. And she, according to the court, was enough to support the jury's verdict. 
But was letting the jury convict Lee and Kane based on what Angela Bruce had to say really a harmless error? Next time on Proof. Did she go to court and testify? She did. Did she testify in court specifically about the pillow? Yep. Over the head. Because I promise you 100% that cop made her lie. What did she lie about? I, I think it was Dallas Battles had her tied up, maybe caught her with something, and uh, told her, hey, you're going to do this for me, and I'm going to let you go. They didn't have, like, that many witnesses to talk to, and they just, like, never bothered to talk to someone else's important party. I don't think it was a matter of not bothering. They were selective. Well, we talked to Angela Bruce. We found her, too. You know, there's a lot of things that were said that I know I didn't say. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode 12. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Production assistance provided by Jude Slava. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.